This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. I'm going to jump into this fourth uh, message in this series called Ready, Set, Go. And for those that have been here the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we've talked already about the passion that is necessary uh, for the mission. Uh, we've talked about the power of the Holy Spirit necessary for the mission. Uh, last week, we talked about finding our purpose not in, in what we do, but in who we chase, who we chase after. Aren't you, aren't you grateful that your ministry is not caught up in what you do, but in who you chase after? Helps us get through a whole bunch of messes. And today, we're going to talk about this fourth pillar of preparation for the mission not only for this house, but for you individually. How many know that you have an individual part to play? Some of us are already in, I wish the air conditioning was colder mode. Right? But what's interesting about the plan and purpose of God is that God always sees your purpose in the context of a family. So that you cannot accomplish your purpose without the support of that family, and they cannot sorry, accomplish their purpose without your support for their life. It's meant to be connected. And so today we're going to talk about the fourth one, which I'm calling provision. Are you ready? And so I guess the first question I always like to ask, I'm a simple guy, is what are we providing for? It's always a good question. If it's about provision, what are we providing for? Well, we're providing for God's mission. Well, the second question is, well, what's God's mission? Because there's a lot of opinions about what God's mission is right now. And I don't know about you, but I stick with the Bible. Um, The Bible's a great book to kind of give away all the secrets and all the hints of what Jesus thinks. And so I'm going to go straight to the Word, and I'm going to go straight to the red part of the Bible because it's what Jesus said. So... I'm just saying you can't go wrong. It says, and Jesus came, Matthew 28, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and what? Make disciples of who? Oh, that's good. Baptizing them. If you haven't been baptized, that's my, that's my plug. Our, our meeting after the service, 1145. Even if you're not sure, come because I get to Take about 20 minutes to convince you and make you feel guilty if you don't. Just kidding. All right. All right, all right, all right, all right. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So you have to understand that we are called to provide for God's mission. God's mission, in its simplicity, is to make disciples. So, one of the things that has to tie in from last week that I think brings context even better right now for last week, is that if the goal or the purpose or the mission that you've created for yourself is your ministry, then I think you're tracking down the wrong pathway. Not only do I think I know, but if we are tracking down Jesus' ministry, then the entire goal of our lives from from birth to the time we go home to be with Jesus, is to make disciples. 
And interestingly enough, the word disciple, literally, if you translate it into the modern English, it's carbon copy. Little Christ. So the entire goal is for us to become a disciple and to make disciples. The problem is, we need to provide for that mission. Right? So, I'm going to talk to you this morning about a very sensitive subject, a five-letter word. It's a very sensitive subject in church world. And I'm sure you can guess, but it's actually the word trust. You thought I was going to say money, didn't you? <laughs> no! No, 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 no. I'm going to talk about trust, but I'm going to use money as the illustration. Is that one good? That was for you, Ryan. Okay, all right. All right, 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 right. <laughs> I'm going to start with a verse that's the whammy of all whammies. Are you ready for this one? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Oh, that hurts. I love the Passion Translation. It says this, for your heart will always pursue what you value as your treasure. In other words, take a look on a week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year process and evaluate where you put your money. One of the things that we have historically done as a church is at the end of every year, we categorize our budget and our, what kind of our expenses, what goes out, into four main categories. Because we want to be able to see where's our money going. And every year we get the same response when it comes to the money that goes out on mission. It hovers somewhere between 25 and 30%. And people have come to us and said, is that like your tithe? And I went, yeah. We don't tithe 10% as a church. We're in the 25 to 30% range. That means it's money that comes in and goes out directly to meet needs or care for or evangelism or outreach or whatever it is. But it's outside of the care of this house. 25 to 30% every year for 11 years in a row. And I actually hope one day that we just keep that going up and up and up. But you have to understand, one of the things that we did back in the early days was we had to have some honest evaluation questions about what's going to happen with the finances of the church. Because how many know if you don't have a plan, it won't just happen? So we planned for at least... 20% from the get-go would go towards anything outside of this church. We said that from the get-go. We said, okay, we're not going to just tithe. We're going to double it. And we're going to start there. And if we can work our way up, we're going to do that. So I I want you to know that when you look at your finances and you look at the choices that you make financially, it's actually revealing where your priorities are. It's also revealing what you're investing in. It's also revealing what your passionate uh, heart's response connects to. Thud. Lord, I just pray that everyone would love me by the end of this message. I pray, Lord God, that they would hear your voice, not my voice. Lord, that there would be no objects thrown at me for the duration of the message. And if some come, that you would send really big angels with really big shields to protect me. (laughs) Amen. Okay. How many know that this is equally as uncomfortable of a topic as it is for you as it is for me? 
I don't know about you, I don't wake up in the morning and go, you know what, I just want to talk about money, that's just what I want to talk about, I just want to inspire people to give more, and that's what I want to do. No, when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, how can I make people have, trust God and to track with the things of God and, you know, partner with God and everything that they do, that's my heart. The problem is, is God uses a particular testing system to see where our heart's at. I wish he would choose something else, then I wouldn't have to preach on this. But he chose this, of all things. Interesting. I think the one question that I've used historically, that Sandra and I use historically in our process of financial decisions, is what we are investing in, does it have eternal value? It's a question that we often ask ourselves. Does it have eternal value or does it not? And if it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's wrong and it doesn't mean it's bad, but there's better. So one of the greatest processes that many Christians go through is getting from the good to the great. (laughs) There's a lot of things that we do that are good, but God wants us to get to the place where we're doing great things with the resources he's giving us. I'm I'm grateful for good, but I love great. I don't know about you. So God's desire is to reach everyone with the gospel message. How many know it's going to take resources? It's not just going to take a prayer meeting, although we'd love those. It's not just going to take writing songs about those things, although we love to do that too. It's not going to just take talking about it or dreaming about it or blogging about it. It's going to take some moments where the rubber hits the road and we say yes with the thing that is most difficult for us to let go of, which is our trust. Money, I meant money, trust, whatever. It's the same thing, right? I want to read a verse that I love. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. You're going to read this and go, what in the world does this have to do with your message? I'm going to explain it. It's awesome. It says, though I am the least deserving of all God's people. This is Paul talking to the church at Ephesus. He graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. What was the goal? What's the mission? Make disciples. Where? Anywhere he goes. For him, it was the Gentiles. That was any nation that was not Jewish. Verse 9, I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. Whenever I see those kind of words in Scripture, I get excited because I'm like, what's coming next? Like, what's what's the secret? What's he about ready to reveal? How many remember, and I'm trying to remember the game show because this is going back into the 70s. But the one where they got up and they had to reveal behind the big door and they had three different doors that they could choose. What was it called? Let's make a deal. I loved it. And I used to watch it going, I wish I could be on that show. And then the Price is Right came along. And then I'm like, then I really want to be on that show. I wanted to play Plinko. I had dreams of playing Plinko. So when we were in kids ministry, I created, with the help of another guy in the church, a large, giant Plinko board for the kids to play. And that's how we did scripture memorization. We did it through Plinko. It was awesome. I digress, and I'm getting back to this. Okay, focus, Cameron. Here's the secret plan. God's purpose, uh uh-oh, in all of this was to use the church. Who's the church? Okay. To display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his 
eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Interesting that he is partnering with the church today to be the conduit of his eternal plan. Which is to get as many people into his kingdom before we die. That's it. I wish I had this visual because I thought of this visual this morning as I was driving in. So I don't have the visual, but I'm going to explain the visual that I saw on my drive-in. If I had two ropes, and I say they went the length of the stage, so I think that's 24 feet. 24 feet, and with one rope, it was completely white with two little kind of red ends. Have you ever seen those little red ends on the end of ropes? You know, like they're like handles? You see these two little red ends on, on each end. Too many people live as if the red ends, which are about this long are the eternity before we were born, and the little red end down here is the eternity after we die, and this big, long, white rope is our life on earth. But it's the total opposite. There's this one little red thing right in the middle with eternity before and eternity after, and there's this little blip in the middle that says, what are you going to do with it? And that's why I'm saying to you, the question Sandra and I ask ourselves financially is, what we are investing in, does it have eternal value? Because eternity is much bigger on the rope of life the way God sees it than it is in the way we see it. So when he's asking us to trust him financially, it's not because he wants to use it and misuse it and abuse it. It's because he wants to Bring as many people into the kingdom of God as you possibly can before you die. That's it. And when I think that like that, I go, Lord, how much do you want? I'm going to say it. Okay, I'm going to say it. You're going to throw things at me. I can feel it already. But if you have a 50-inch TV, you do not need a 65. If you have a $20,000 kitchen, you don't need a $40,000 kitchen. What you need to do is take the $20,000 you want to put in the new kitchen and put it into the gospel. No one cares. Except you. We have a very simple rule in our house. We only replace something if it's broken. And if it's broken, we replace it, and we pray that the Lord would shut down Home Outfitter. <laughs> and make everything that's high quality 70% off. Lord, you're so good. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Just say, no, they're closing in two weeks. You want to get there as fast as possible because I bought the half, half the store in the last two weeks. Just say it. But I want you to understand We are so wired to think us. Me. Well, if I have that better TV, then I can. You know what? Then you can see more of the screen. Whoa. 
But I want you to understand this morning, God is going to tug on your heart all morning, and I'm going to say something I've never said in 11 years. I'm not going to apologize for it. And I'm not going to be a softy today like I normally am, because I usually get to these places like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, guys, I'm sorry, I have to talk about money, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I'm going this morning, God has a plan. It's an eternal plan, it's a mysterious plan that he's put into motion from the beginning of the time that before even time started, he had it in his mind. And he's saying, do you want to partner with me? Because I really like it if you guys could partner with me. If you don't, I'll find someone else. And he's saying, would you partner with me? And if the answer is yes, then he starts to knock on the door of your heart and he starts to stretch you. And you go, God, what are you doing? And he says, isn't it great? (laughs) So he wants, his goal in life, when you get to heaven, is he wants to see mega amounts of faith and trust stretch marks on your body when you get there. And if there's no stretch marks, it means... You had a supernatural birthing experience. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Okay. Sensitive subject camera, move on. Okay, here we go. Right, all right, all right, all right. So I'm going to talk to you this morning about, (laughs) don't get me started. I'm going to talk to you about three tests. Are you ready for this? Three tests that I call tests of trust that God, Scripture, it's, it's all over Scripture. It's there. Number one is stewardship. I'm going to explain what a steward is. A steward, interestingly enough, it comes from the Greek word oikonomos, and it literally means to arrange or to be the arranger or, or administrator of a household. That's what it means. And it, it's literally a person trusted to look after the affairs, including finances, of another. You can see it as almost like a superintendent of a building or, you know, something like that. Or um, there's a lot of different, obviously, modern-day examples you can look at. The greatest biblical example of this process is Matthew 25 called the Parable of the Talents. I'm not going to read it this morning, but you can make note of it. It's Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. But I want to read a quote here from actually the head of our fellowship, MFI, from Frank Damasio, Dr. Frank Damasio. And he says this. During the time of the writings of the New Testament books, the word okonomos, or steward, was freely used in everyday vernacular. This word described the function of a certain class of trusted slaves who were highly coveted by wealthy estate owners. These slaves, who were usually captured during the many battles the Romans had, were usually very intelligent, gifted men who could work as an administrator of the estate. And you have to understand that these people were placed into these positions, first and foremost, because they were trusted. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, kind of gives a, even a more of expansion on this thought. And it says, moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Faithfulness is talking about a lot of things. It's talking about your integrity. It's talking about your character. It's talking about your loyalty. It's talking about the fact that you're always going to be there no matter what. So when we look at this godly stewardship concept and we understand what stewarding means, it literally means that everything that I have belongs to God. And this is where God messes us up because we have been trained in most churches to think that 10% belongs to God 
and 90% is ours. But a steward, which is the first test, says that everything that I have belongs to God. We have fun with this because we've gotten to the point in our lives where if, if someone comes over and we hear about, you know, so-and-so needs a certain thing, we will literally look in our house and go, well, we got two of those. Give it away. We had this one day where we talked about something as a family, and we heard about the situation where there was a new individual in the city. They, were going, they had gone through a mess, an awful time. This is years ago. And <clears throat> we had heard through the grapevine, we didn't even hear from them, that they couldn't even get into a place. They didn't even have furniture. They didn't have a bed. They didn't have bedding. And... Long story short, we found out a friend had given them a whole bed set, and then we found out they had nothing in their living room. They didn't have a chair to sit on in their living room. And we talked about it with our kids, and, and this was like a number of years ago, so our kids were very small. I think Josiah maybe would have been eight or nine at the time. And we talked about it with our kids, and we said, well, what do you think, guys? And the response from our oldest son was, Dad, we have two living rooms. We got two couches and two chairs and two coffee tables and two of everything. Why don't we give them the, this one? And we're like, duh. So one day, the kids came home from school and there was nothing in our living room. We got rid of the lamps, the, everything. The only thing that stayed was the piano because, Sandra, we want there to be no death in the family that day. And we did find out that the person doesn't play piano, so we felt better about that. But anyhow. But what I want you to understand is that this is common practice for our lives. We don't even think twice about what we have because we don't own it. It is not ours. It is not my stuff. It's God's stuff, and I'm only borrowing it until he needs someone else to use it. Okay. So not only is everything that I have belong to God, but I own nothing. But I have everything. And the third statement is this. I'm in possession, but God is in control. I'm in possession, but God's in control. Okay, that's, uh, that's test one. All right, test two. The most amazing part of my message. Here we go. Are you ready for this? We're going to talk about tithing. I'm going to say it again. We're going to talk about tithing. <laughs> what I got up this morning to hear all about. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Pastor Cam. Oh, I love it. Did you guys know that there's about 500 verses in the Bible on prayer, about 500 verses on faith, and over 2,000 on money? You know that over 30% of Jesus' parables talked about money or possessions. Ouch. So, what's the tithe? It literally means a tenth. So when scripture talks about a tithe, it literally means obedience in giving 10% of your income to the church that you are a part of. I know some people can argue it's for other things, and I would argue I'm not going to lose sleep over that, and that's not a hill I'm going to die on. But from everything that I've read in scripture, it's to the local church that you are being fed at and being supported by. All right. 
It literally means attempt. So I'm going to just, just for the sake of clarity, I'm not doing this to be a pain. I'm just doing this for the sake of clarity. So to give 1% is not tithing. To give 9.9999% is not tithing. Some people say, well, I'm tithing. And you're giving 2%. That's not a tithe. That's an offering, and we're grateful. Trust me, we are grateful. We would not be here without your grateful, without your generosity, so thank you. But scripturally, 10% is the tithe. That's the bar. Anything below that bar, you can't ever say you're tithing because it's not true. All right, thud. All right, keep moving. All right, 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 right. But why is tithing God's financial system for taking care of his mission? Why is it that? Why did he start this? Why did he come up with this? Why in the world didn't he just say, just trust God and let, let him supernaturally provide by allowing Bill Gates to love on this church and bless us with millions of dollars? Why didn't he just choose that route? And my answer to you is because you will never learn trust. If Bill Gates showed up here right now and gave us a million dollars, although Bill Gates, wherever you are, I don't mind. If you want it, you go right ahead. Cameron Jeff, 613-929-8391, Brayside Crescent, Kingston, Ontario. Come on down. You're the next contestant. I'll give me money. All right. So tithing is more about testing your trust than it is about money. All right. It's biblical. Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to talk about Abraham just for a second. It says there's this guy named Melchizedek. And I'm going to, it's very interesting. This guy's very interesting in scripture. If you ever want to do a character study on somebody in the Bible, you could have so much fun on this guy. This, this is crazy. It says in verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. Now, before I jump into this, there's so many cool little things here. What did he bring out? What did Jesus bring out at the Last Supper? Oh, interesting. What did it represent? His broken body and his blood shed for you. Interesting. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And in one version it says, And Abraham responded, but in this version it says, And he, which is Abram, Gave him a tithe of all. Gave him a tithe of all. Abraham's talked about in the New Testament in in Romans chapter 4 as the father of faith. So Abraham was the father of faith. He was the father of trust. And God used him as an example of how to trust God. That That was why he's called the father of faith. And interestingly enough, he represents so many ways the Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers because of this. So... I want to read you another verse found in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 7, describing this guy named Melchizedek. It says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem means peace. Who was the prince of peace? Okay. Priest of the Most High God. Who took our sins upon himself as the sacrifice of sins, therefore fulfilling the priestly role? Jesus. Okay, keep moving. Who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem. Meaning king of peace. 
who was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither the beginning of days or the end of life. Who in the world could that be? Abraham met Jesus in Genesis chapter 14 and tithed to the Christ figure and we are called the body of... Oh, interesting. But made like the Son of God. Interesting, he didn't just say made like God. Made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. What's he doing right now? Seated at the right hand of the Father, praying for you and interceding for you every day. Wow, that's interesting. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So most scholars, almost everyone, believe that Melchizedek is Jesus. I don't think we can miss that. Okay? It actually goes on in Psalm 110, verse 4, when David is describing the future Messiah. He says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Ties it in. So why is this important? Okay, why is this important? And I tell you why. Because one of the biggest arguments against tithing in the last 20 years, and it has taken on a whole life of its own, is that it was part of the Old Testament law, and Jesus came to fulfill the law and do away with it. The problem is this took place 430 years before the law came. Well, that blows that theory out of the water, doesn't it? Oops. Jacob tithed 350 years before the Old Testament law came. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, I love how God provides so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set as a pillar, interesting, shall be God's house. What's the house of God? The church. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. It was a natural response that out of the gratefulness for everything that God has done, God, I'm going to trust you with the first 10%, knowing that you're going to take care of the rest. And I don't know about you, but if Jesus says something, it's good enough for me. Have you ever had a moment where if Jesus says something, it's completely good enough for you? Okay? All right. Matthew 23, 23. It says, Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders of the day. And he says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites. I don't know about you. I haven't done that lately. But Jesus did. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Here's the catch. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. I I want you to understand here. Jesus condoned tithing. The problem with the Pharisees is the only thing they saw was religious duty. They had no concept of relationship. And what tithing, where tithing functions best is in the context of an amazing, godly, healthy relationship with the one that you know and trust. Amen? All right. So tithing is not law. Tithing is life. Tithing captures a principle that runs through the entire Bible. It is not just here, there, and 
everywhere. It's, it's literally from start to finish. I would even argue, if you look into the theological teaching on first fruits, that the first time tithing is mentioned is actually in the Garden of Eden. God said, you can have everything in this garden except that one. And he actually calls it the devoted thing. Interestingly enough, the tithe in the Old Testament scriptures is referred to as the devoted thing. And it says, don't touch what's devoted to me. I go one step further. God gives Abram a promise. It's the promise of a son. He tried to figure it out on his own, produced a son with a servant named, Ish, uh, named Hagar and produced Ishmael. And if you go back through the genealogy, you'll actually find out that Ishmael was the beginning lines of the future Muslim race. Interesting. But he says, I want you to wait for the son of promise. The son of promise came 25 years later. His name was Isaac. And one of the first things that happened in the storyline after Isaac was born was God comes to Abram and says, I want you to give up your son for me. I don't know about you, when we're in 2019 and we read stories like that, I go, I don't get that. Lord, that doesn't sound very loving and very merciful. But you have to understand it had nothing to do with the death of his son. It had everything to do with the test of trust. And the father looked down at Abram and said, if you can tithe your first, I'll tithe my first. And you know where the tithe gets really tricky? Is that he asked for his son before he had any others. The father sent his son before he had proof of the salvation that would come after. Well, that's, that's trust. Interestingly enough, the tithe is not just 10%. <laughs> you say, oh, no, you can just say it's 20? No, it's 10%. But it's not just 10%. It's the first fruits of the 10%. So in other words, if I had $100 bills up, up here on stage, and I'm sure I'd have everyone running to the stage to grab them, but if I had $100 bills, and I grabbed them out of my pocket, and I put them in my hand, and I started putting 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, 800, 1,000, 900,000, which one is the tithe? It's the first one spent. This is where tithing gets uh, really, it gets hard for people. God wants you to trust him with what's coming next. But he needs you to place it down first. And then he takes care of the rest. Now, that does not mean be foolish and crazy and silly and all these other things that some people do. I want to say this just to give clarity to this. Tithing is a test of trust. It's not a test of faith. The tithe is God's way of seeing if you trust him, seeing if you trust the leaders he's placed into your care. Well, that's tough. And three, to see if he trusts you to be a conduit of his resources. But if we make it a test of faith, then guess what happens? There's too many movements in churches around the world right now that make tithing a test of faith, and they try to outgive one another. And then it actually becomes the principle of getting, not of giving. 
because you want recognition for all the stuff that you've done. And, oh, I gave that. Oh, and I gave 25% this year. Oh, I gave 90% this year. I lived off 10. And my response to you is, God only asked for 10, so why are you showing off? And then they look at me and say, you're a Leaf fan, and then they walk away, and, you know, and then I, I try to ignore that. But Proverbs 3, 9 to 10 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. What is one of the major reasons why people struggle practically to do this? I'm going to tell you why. Because the things that we are investing in and prioritizing usually involves living above our means. And so here's, here's my, my challenge to you guys to get on the tithing track. The first step to get there for so many people, simplify your life. Don't replace things that don't need replacing unless it's broken. You know, someone made a comment to us the other day, and they're like, how old is your van? And we're like, it is going to be 14 years in December, and it's 240,000 kilometers, and we're praying that God gets us to 500,000. And they're looking at us like, are you kidding me? I said, it's either going to make it or it's going to rust through everything and it's going to look like Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble because our feet will go through the floor of the van. But I don't care. And they said, don't you want something new? I couldn't care less. Why? Because it gets us from A to B. And we have movements across this world, especially in North America, where the better things you got means you are just so much godlier. And I go, interesting, Jesus lived the complete opposite way. Is there anything wrong with being blessed? No. If God blesses you, should you be grateful? Yes. If God gives you something that you would probably never purchase, but he gives it to you, can I, can I just free your mind for a second? Enjoy every last second of it. But don't ever think that it's because you're, you, got, you have the faith to get that. Nope, God's just looking for obedience and trust. All right. Examples of first fruits. Cain and Abel, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought his firstborn of his flock and their fat. The Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Cain brought his offering in the process of time. It wasn't first. Abel brought first. Why is this important? Because God will only entrust those when he knows that he's first in your life. He'll bless you. He'll take care of you. He'll meet all your needs because that's what he wants to do. But when it comes to being a conduit of the resources of the kingdom of God to make disciples and extend the kingdom of God on the earth, there's a process of testing to see if is he really first all right city of jericho first city to be taken by the israelites in the promised land god simply said to them that's mine all the spoils of the city of jericho belong to me you can have the rest what was it the tithe said give me the first you can have the rest what happened there was a man named Achan. If you've ever been named Achan, you probably are looking for a problem. He stole some of the spoils. And what happened was there was a curse that came upon the whole nation of Israel because of it. That's not good. God says, give me first. Okay? All right. The key here is that the tithe 
is always first because we're putting God first. It's that test of trust that he wants us to live out. All right. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 to 11, and I'm going to steal Colleen's thought, or not, not your thoughts, but I'm going to steal your verse because it was so good last week. It says, will a man rob God? Whenever you start with a question like that, it's never good. Yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? He said, you haven't come to enough prayer meetings. And you haven't got involved in small groups at Impact Church. No, it doesn't say that. It says in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse for you've robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this. I don't know about you, but when God says I double dog dare you in scripture, it's good enough for me. People have come to us for the last 25 years and said, where in the world do you come up with these stories of God blessing you? And I go, well, do you want to hear the stories of trust that happened before? And as soon as we tell them those stories, they're like, oh, oh, you know, that's okay. I'll just, I'll live off my paycheck over here. That's good. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know if I can do that. Most people don't know this, and I love to brag on my wife because she's just amazing. But most people don't know. Sandra had an entire ministry in Europe with contacts everywhere. She was on some pretty big stages playing worship music at some very large conferences. And she came to Oshawa Community Church in the ghetto of downtown Oshawa with 50 people, of which half were street people. And God said, this is your promised land. And she said, okay, I'm gone. Most people don't know her background. They see her here and serving at King's. She gave up a pretty good life. So you have to understand, God is testing us with this whole thing called the tithe. Okay? Goes on to say, if it will not, if I I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Verse 11, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. I love what you shared last week, Colleen. That was awesome. So that he will destroy, uh, not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. So the Bible, this is the only time where God literally says in the Bible, test me. Only time. And interestingly enough, scripturally, the number 10 actually represents testing in scripture. I'm going to prove it to you, okay? Ready? How many plagues were there in Egypt? That's pathetic uh, participation. How many plagues were in Egypt? Okay. How many commandments? How many hate nine of them? I'm kidding. All right. All right. Just kidding. All right. All right. Okay. You didn't put up your hand yet. That was good. All right. How many times was the nation of Israel tested in the desert? Just guess. All right. How many times were Jacob's wages changed? Ten. How many days was Daniel tested? Ten. How many virgins were tested in Matthew 25? All right, we're good, we're good. How many days of testing were there in Revelation chapter 2? Ten. How many disciples were there? Oh, okay, I just want to check. Just checking. Just checking. Make sure you're all following along. 
That's good. Okay. There was 12. Soon to be 11. Then they had a 12th again after the one guy decided to do some crazy stuff. All right. I want to end with this third thought. The test of motivation. Huh. Are you ready? I'm going to wrap this whole thought up in one story in the Bible. John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. It says, then six days before the Passover. Actually, I'm just going to give you a bit of context. Jesus was about to die very soon. Okay? And so this is some of the last days before he was uh, about to be crucified. It says, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, was there. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with them. Verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. That would be strange. I've never had that happen, but that would be strange. I'm like, no, it's okay. (laughs) It's okay. Stop it. Weird me out here. Someone's going to get that on YouTube. All right, okay. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to make what was put in it. Hmm. Oh, sorry, he used to take what was put in it. That's a slight difference. Uh, verse 7, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of, her, of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. I want you to see here two complete opposite reactions to this one moment, this one incident in Scripture. One was extreme generosity, and I'm going to explain why. And one was extreme selfishness. So for Mary, it says in verse 3 that she had a very costly oil of spikenard. And many of you have heard this story, but for those that maybe have never heard this story, I just want to give you a quick reader, uh, Cole's Notes version of it so you understand what was happening. For a young woman, her entire identity was wrapped up in getting married and having children. And we're, in some, a lot of ways, grateful that that's not true anymore because uh, women are awesome. But I want you to know this was the context of the day. That if a woman could not marry, she was worthless. If a woman was married but couldn't have children, she was considered worthless. So that's the context. The problem is, is this just wasn't any little flask of oil. This was her dowry given to her at her coming of age by her father for her wedding night. What was it supposed to be used for? For her to pour over herself for her wedding night for her husband. So when she was pouring out her dowry, she was literally saying, Jesus, you have all of me. I give up everything. I give up everything I could possibly be, all my worth, my value, to worship you because that's how I feel about you. Extreme generosity of worship. Extreme. What was her motivation? Love. And then Judas comes along. Notice... Notice here, the first thing that Judas cared about was money. The first thing Mary cared about was Jesus. Huh. Money leads to selfishness. When we focus on Jesus, who's one of the, he's the most generous of us all, we think generosity. And here's the question that I thought of coming out of this little, little story. Because this hit me. I don't know if you've ever seen this, read this, and thought of this. But here's what hit me. Why in the world did Judas care about what someone else was doing with their own possessions? 
Who cares what someone else does with their own money? It bothered him. Do you want to know why? Because it exposed his selfishness. <laughs> As it, you know what? Most people who complain about the you know, excessive generosity and giving of another, it's because it's revealing something in you. And you're like, oh, no. So, maybe he felt convicted by his own selfishness. I don't know. But obviously, something was ironic there. So, I want you to understand this whole concept of motivation through the two different vessels that these two individuals were carrying. And I have a little kind of chart up on screen that we're going to show you here. Judas's vessel was a money box. Mary's vessel was an alabaster jar of oil. Judas's vessel was a place of containment. Mary's vessel was a place of pouring out. Judas's vessel was what is contained remains. Mary's vessel was what is poured out spreads. Thirty pieces of silver came from it for Judas in betrayal. Three hundred denarii came from it in devotion. And thirty pieces became his death. 300 pieces became her memorial. Matthew 26, 13 says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Judas wanted to keep what he had, and he was considered selfish. Mary wanted to pour out what she had. And there's a story that we still tell today, 2,000 years later, of her spirit of generosity. Can I say to you this morning, selfishness will never pass pass the test of trust. It never will. It's impossible to pass that trust or that test. But I want to end with this thought because this is a thought that has always blown me away. How many recognize that Judas probably has a problem with money? Okay? I mean, we don't have a ton of scriptures, but I think the conclusion that we can come to is Judas has a problem with money, or we can say money has a problem with Judas. Depending on which way you want to look at it, there's a problem. Because Judas literally had what 1 Timothy 6 talks about is the love of money, which is the root of all evil. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. But when then Jesus was picking, you know, when Jesus had a discovery group 2,000 years ago, and he was getting them to find out what they were good at and where they're gifted. And where he goes, you know what, Judas? I got a great plan for you. You are pathetic when it comes to the right motivation for money. So I'm going to put you in charge of the finance committee. And I go, what was Jesus thinking? I don't know about you, but as a human, I don't think I would have the courage to do that. Because if we're all being honest, we would all look at that and go, why in the world is that? Why are they putting them there? What are they doing? And I'll tell you why. Because God loved him so much that he wanted to put him in a position where his heart would be revealed and he could repent and get straight. Because it would never have been revealed if it wasn't in there. And he couldn't deal with the guilt and repent so he dealt with the guilt by killing himself. But Jesus gave him every opportunity to see the root of his heart motivation. But he didn't do the right thing with it. 
But I honestly believe that God is doing the same thing to us right now. And some of us, we're feeling like this particular issue is a broken record, and we're hearing it over and over and over again. That's not our goal. That's not our heart. But I want you to understand, God is not after your money. He's after your heart. But he uses money as the test to see if you trust him. When I was in my teenage years, I used to always think that, because it was the easier way to go, that if we just believed in God supernaturally doing something, then that was trusting God. And depending on your background, we put all of our faith and trust in the supernatural. And here's what I've realized over many years of getting it right and getting it wrong, is obedience to God opens the door to the supernatural. You're like, so pastor, what are you saying to me today? Are you saying that if I don't tithe, you're disobedient? And my answer is, as smoothly as it can possibly be, I didn't say that. Jesus did. Some people will do these things in church today. It was like, hey, just start at 2%, 3%. And I'm like, you know what? I, I think from a giving perspective, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to work yourself up. But from an obedience perspective, 2% is still not 10. It's not. So what I want to challenge you with this morning is with a quote from my beautiful wife of something she said a couple years ago. She said this, the greatest blessing we can experience is to see God's kingdom enlarge, to see ministries advance, churches grow, to see broken people become whole, all becoming a possibility because of our obedience and giving. Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com. 